Welcome to Cellsiders, a look at the business and technology of batteries from the cell side of things. Today, we're joined by our special guest, James Frith, head of energy storage at the indispensable Bloomberg NEF. James, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Ben. Hey, Jordy. Thanks for having me. Um, great to be here and really looking forward to, uh, to diving into the cell side of stuff. And as you intimated, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jordi Sastra. Jordi, what's the weather in Zurich like today? Hey, Ben. Hey, James. It's a sunny day in Switzerland, finally. Uh, thanks, James, for having for coming to the podcast and discussing all your fantastic work in, in battery, the battery industry. Yeah, no, ha- happy to be here. And also happy to report that it is sunny in London today as well. So I think everything's looking up for the weekend. Yeah, we're finally out of the, we're finally out of the low pressure system in Europe. Um, James, just to get things started, I'd really like to hear about how you got to be where you are today. So what catalyzed your interest in batteries and what got you started in the industry? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think um, when we were talking about this um, beforehand, you kind of posed it as the the superhero origin story. Um, And I I wish I could say that it it was a superhero origin story. I, I kind of feel like um, I've almost um, just ended up where I am out of pure um, luck and chance, um, but I'm so grateful, you know, that that's all come together to to to, to end up, um, yeah, with, with my situation at the moment. Um, I suppose if if we're going back to you know where it all started, um, it started in my undergraduate chemistry degree. Um, so I was studying at Southampton, um, and it, it, it was a course that was was interesting, but uh, you know, I think as a lot of chemistry courses are. It was very organic chemistry heavy. You know, that's where a lot of the focus was. That's where, um, you know, the department put a lot of its resources and where a lot of the researchers were. Um, and although I, you know, I found that side of things interest, interesting, it never really um, had that spark for me. Um, uh, and so coming towards the end of this kind of uh, degree, um, I was actually looking to, to probably move out of kind of research at least um and possibly you know maybe even away from chemistry you know there were a lot of people at that time going into things like accountancy um and i'm I'm glad i didn't end up there um to be fair sorry for the accountants out there um but in my third year um i was lucky enough to do a a kind of um in-house research project um and i opted for kind of the environmental slash energy um, option, not really having kind of much of a choice, um, but ended up in a lithium or in a battery research group. So working with um, John Owen at, at the University of Southampton in the electrochemistry department. Um, and I, there was just something about that placement that just kind of sold it to me. I think it was the promise of um, what was to come. You know, it's still, this is 2010, um, EVs haven't really kind of or aren't really on sale at that point in Europe. Um, but there was just this excitement around this technology that was going to kind of revolutionize the way that we get around. Um, and it seemed like it was, you know, it was imminent. It was just about to happen. Uh, now I should caveat this by saying that the the research project and then the kind of following PhD that I did was on lithium air batteries and, and they were all the rage back in 2010. Um, you know, it looked like they were just about to be kind of, kind of commercialized in the next five years. Now we know that that didn't happen, um, but it was that promise and the excitement of the technology just kind of seeing what uh, kind of chemistry could do and electrochemistry could do to kind of change the world really. Um, so that's what sparked my interest. Um, at the end of that research project, 
um, John Owen, who's my supervisor, um, he had mentioned, you know, the possibility of perhaps doing a PhD. Um, when it got down to it, the funding that he initially had put aside or, or kind of earmarked for for me to go and do go and do that PhD um, didn't materialize. Um, so he kind of arranged a couple of conversations with some other people in the department for some other PhDs to see if you know I'd be interested in them. Um, but it they just didn't have the same, you know, didn't pique that same interest and didn't give me the same buzz. So I, I, I turned them down. Um, but in the kind of, you know, in the, the 90th minute, um, John managed to rearrange some of his funding from a European batch research project um, and take me on um, as, a, as a PhD student there. And I'm, I'm so grateful that he did because, um, you know, that was the, the, the beginning of it, really. And, and I haven't looked back since. Um, so, you know, to, to skip over the, the intervening years, I did the PhD, enjoyed it, um, stayed on as a postdoc for, for two years. Um, in part because I wasn't sure where I wanted to go on to next, um, because I was still finding the research really exciting. Um, uh, and because I enjoyed the kind of that problem solving element of it and the group that I was working in. Um, but I'm sure kind of, uh, you know, as, as both of you know, if you want to um, go somewhere in academia, you can't just stay in the same research group. You have to kind of move around and, and expand your horizons. Um, now, for various reasons, uh, aside from the kind of moving around aspect, um, I kind of came to the conclusion that academia um, wasn't where I wanted to be in the long run. Um, but I also didn't necessarily want to go um, directly into kind of industry, you know, working um, on the development of, of technologies, um, you know, for my own reasons. Um, and it just so happened um, that when I, when the kind of second year of my um, postdoc was coming to an end, I stumbled across um, an advert for a position studying or working on energy storage at Bloomberg um, NEF. Um, and uh, yeah, through, I guess, kind of luck again and, and a little bit of chance uh, and good fortune kind of managed to secure that, that position. Um, and again, you know, haven't looked back since um, and have kind of really valued the way that it allows me to um, bridge academic research and industrial interests. Um, and, and I think that probably gets us to today. What was it that sort of drove you more uh, away from academia um, and away from pursuing the sort of classic sort of tenure track career path? Y yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and actually, I think some of the reasons perhaps aren't valid um in the battery industry you know the academic battery industry um today um but at the time uh you know i was very aware that in academia you have to fight for funding you're constantly fighting to get money and win research projects um which is fine when the money's flowing but i you know that can be very stressful if for whatever reason um, you know, governments or funding bodies decide that that area of research isn't a focus, you know, anymore. As I say, you know, that's probably not relevant that argument today because, you know, certainly uh, I think in, in in most countries around the world, there's a huge amount of money going into battery research. So the other thing is that um, in academia, um, there can be, I guess, what's perceived as a lot of rivalry and and one-upmanship, always having to to be the best and be kind of very competitive. Um, and I think. I didn't like the idea of of, of having to um, 
perhaps not work collaboratively with the people, you know, the other people in the industry. Again, I think within the battery research field, that's not necessarily the case so much anymore because um, there is a lot of collaboration in the UK. We have the Faraday Battery Institution, which is actually bringing all of the researchers in the field together. Um, And again, you know, as both of you um, know, the kind of battery Twitter community um, is great. Everyone's kind of very supportive of each other and collaborative. Um, So, you know, the arguments that I had at the time for for not pursuing um, academia perhaps don't hold true um, anymore today. But, um, you know, as I say, uh, I'm quite quite grateful for where I have ended up. I have a question to the topic. Uh, I mean, I I agree with you. Uh, There is still a lot of toxicity in the academia environment. And I, I really praise the work that the guys uh, are doing in Twitter and, and Slack and so on. This is super great, uh, collaborate, collaborative, but there is still a lot of toxicity, I, I have to say. But uh, I was asked by, by a listener, he's a, a master's student and he wants to go into the battery industry. And he was wondering if he should go to a PhD or just try to get a position in industry as soon as possible. What do you recommend? Is it worth it doing this PhD, this academic career and then switch into industry or going right away? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great question. And, and um, you know, I can give an answer, but I don't think it's necessarily the right answer because it probably varies depending on, on, on you know, different people's, um, you know, personal circumstances. In general, though, you know, I think in the battery industry, um, you know, it's a growth industry. Um, there's a lot of technology developments out there. You know, I don't think we're nearly kind of at the end of the road for for, for where um, performance can go. Um, you know, so kind of just based on those two factors alone, I think it's worth investing the time now to do a PhD, become an expert in, you know, a specific area. And um, that will kind of help, a, help their career out in the future going into this industry. It'll help to differentiate them from, you know, others out there as well. And so, so, so I personally would say, yeah, do it, do the PhD. And as well, from my experience, actually PhD can be a lot of fun. Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily as much hard work as um, sometimes it's made out to be. Um, maybe we just get lucky in the battery uh, industry. We have one PhD in the interview and we have one very, very close to being a PhD also. My background's completely different. My advice to people in that situation has always been, if you know what you want to do, go do it. If you want to be a battery researcher, be a battery researcher. If you want to work in industry, go work in industry. Um, sort of trying to come around through the back door, you know, it, it rarely saves you a lot of time. And sometimes it can sort of, you waste time doing something that you're not interested. So, you know, in terms of making decisions, flip a coin and when the coin's in the air, you'll know what you want to do and go do that. Yeah, I I think that's so right. And I'd just add to that as well that I wouldn't do, you know, I would never do or recommend doing a PhD if you didn't really enjoy the subject that you're working on and you don't get along with the kind of group and the supervisor that you're working with as well. Um, Otherwise, I think, yeah, it probably does end up being a, a waste of time. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your work with Bloomberg and the work that Bloomberg NEF does on energy storage. I think everybody is probably familiar with the chart that Bloomberg puts out every year of this decline in the average cost of lithium-ion batteries. I think the figure from 2020 was $137 per kilowatt hour. 
without giving away any trade secrets, uh, can you just give us an idea of the kind of work that goes into producing that final number? Yeah, certainly. So um, I guess it's worth at this point as well, um, just differentiating the differentiating the two pieces of research we do. So the that that graph is our kind of top-down industry-led um, survey. We also do the bottom-up um, cost modeling. Um, but the yeah, the top-down number, that that $137 per kilowatt hour, um, a, a lot of work goes into it. Um, it's um, always a great piece of information, you know, a great piece of research to carry out. Um, but uh, I, I would say it does add a little bit of stress to my life for you know a couple of months of, of the year. Um, but basically, the way that we collect that is we carry out an industry-wide survey of um, companies that are buying or selling battery cells or battery packs. So that would include, for example, cell manufacturers. It would include independent pack producers, as well as stationary storage developers and um, automate automakers who are out there, um, kind of buying cells to put into their packs or even buying packs individually. Um, so generally, we put together a kind of survey Excel. We send that out to um, the kind of list of participants that we have. Um, and each year, kind of, we're adding more and more companies to that. Um, we then have kind of select interviews with a number of those kind of key companies that we think um, kind of will, will have some more specific and interesting um, information. Uh, and then um, kind of yeah, compile that together and, and take different cuts of the data. But that one number, that 137 number that you see, that's the high level number. It's the industry um, average, so it's volume weighted as well. Um, so um, I always say, you know, um, there's a lot of information contained within that, and, and really you want to kind of break it out to, to really understand what's going on um, within the industry. Yeah, and in the, in that way, it's almost less like a price and more like an index. Where do you make an effort to really keep that methodology the same year over year, so that you can really do these longitudinal comparisons? Yeah, so certainly. So um, the, the the methodology does stay the same um, in terms of the kind of, for the forecasting. We use um, you know a, a learning curve approach. That methodology has um, stayed the same. Uh, certainly since I've been carrying it out, which, you know, I started in 2017. Um, and I think, you know, actually since before then as well, we were using that volume weighted approach. Um, I guess when it comes to collecting the prices from the industry, um, we've always kind of, we very strictly define what should be included in the price at the cell level and the price at the pack level so that we can have that can, kind of comparison year on year. Um, and in general, um, you know, most um, of the participants tend to um, adhere to that. There's probably one or two results in that where perhaps people are adding in, um, you know, delivery costs or tariffs on top of the actual kind of pack price itself. Um, but uh, we try to make sure that that doesn't happen. And we're just looking at the kind of price of the hardware. So the battery pack, the cells, the modules, the thermal management system, uh, connecting wiring, um, et cetera. And at the pack level, how do you factor each application? So you have buses and you have cars, uh, it's very different systems. Yeah, so in that very high level number that you see, the $137 per kilowatt hour, um, that's averaged across all of those submissions. So it doesn't take into account those different applications. So what we do instead um, is we will have a separate breakout for um, you know for each of those sectors. So in, in 2020, for example, 
um, passenger EV battery packs, uh, BEV battery packs came in at $126 per kilowatt hour. Um, PHEV packs were um, over kind of $350 per kilowatt hour, whereas stationary storage racks, and that is a, a slight difference, stationary storage racks um, were about $177 per kilowatt hour. But then again, even within the stationary storage sector, there's a huge range of prices based on like the duration. Um, but we do try to keep that, um, yeah, you know, we assess that by breaking it out separately, um, you know, in, in within the report itself. Um, so you mentioned there's this top down, and I guess it's somewhat backward looking um, approach of surveying the industry, seeing what prices they paid, and then putting it all into your uh, sort of overall pricing index. And then you also mentioned this bottom up approach. Uh, is that where the sort of forward-looking projections come from, or do you also do sort of backward-looking modeling and, and somehow try and harmonize the two? Yeah. So th- again, this is a great um, you know great question. Um, so with the price survey um, work that we do, we use an experience curve model, which is you know still a top-down approach to model um, prices going forward. So we um, not only look at the price of cells in a given year, we look at the volume of cells kind of deployed. Um, We then combine, uh, or we then look at the kind of relationship between the the volume and the price. um, And um, that gives us a a learning rate of 18%, which tells us that um, every time the cumulative volume of batteries deployed on the market doubles, prices fall by 18%. So we can then take that, that, learning rate and apply that to the our forecast for the volumes of batteries that are going to be deployed across um, stationary storage, passenger EVs, e-buses, uh, commercial vehicles, electric two and three wheelers. Um, we can look at those volumes going forward, apply that learning rate, and that tells us, you know, based on the volume of batteries that are being deployed, we expect prices in year X or Y to be this much. So that's still very much a kind of a top-down methodology. Um, and it, it's just kind of, yeah, um, looking at what's happened historically and, and, and carrying that forward. That's, you know, I think a, a fine method methodology to use. But alongside that, we always do some bottom-up um, modelling as well to make sure that there's actually a practical way of achieving those kind of price points that we are forecasting um, rather than, yeah, just kind of fully relying on, a, I, I guess, what you could say is, you know, almost a crystal ball method. Um, and I'm just curious, you've been at Bloomberg NEF for about four years, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So um, uh, just one month away from, from the four-year anniversary here. Going through this process of modeling and sort of making your predictions, and then certainly there's a process of checking your predictions against then what you what you find. Has there been anything really surprising or interesting over the course of the last four years that's really jumped out um you know, you expected something and the reality wound up being completely different. You were way too conservative or way too optimistic with certain estimates. Like what stands out from your experience over those past four years? Yeah, I, I, it, it's it's an interesting and difficult question, this one. Um, uh, I think there's a, there's a few things that I could probably call out here. You know, I think one of them would be um, the reemergence of lithium-ion phosphate, right? That was something that in 2018, um, it looked like in the passenger electric vehicle market, there wasn't going to be much of a role for lithium-ion phosphate going forward. Um, 
one of the reasons for that was that in China they had um, kind of uh, subsidies in place that were linked to energy density requirements for battery packs. And those energy density requirements essentially meant that um, lithium-ion phosphate couldn't be used. Um, uh, so, that, you know, that, that was what it looked like at the time. Um, and then two things kind of ha happened since then. One was that the subsidies were removed. So now energy density um, wasn't being assessed in the, in the same way. Um, and then the second one is, of course, the um, emergence of cell-to-pack technology, uh, you know, which then boosted the energy density of lithium-ion phosphate packs and, and made them kind of comparable to medium nickel content NMC chemistries, giving, you know, reasonable range at a slightly lower cost. Um, so that was kind of hard, well, hard, hard for me to kind of predict and forecast. Um, and so that led to us changing our chemistry mix from 2018 to 2019. Um, not a huge amount, but but more than I would have liked, right? We, we expected, you know, we saw more LFP coming on um, to the market. I'm just about to do our 2021 modeling. Um, and I'll be interested to see what that spits out in terms of kind of um, lithium iron phosphate um, you know, percentage share of the chemistry mix uh, over the next couple of years. So watch this space. I think that's definitely one thing. Um, probably the uh, probably the other thing um, that I think kind of was a huge change in the industry is if we look at um, the manufacturing space in Europe. If we go back to 2018, um, there were a few uh, companies who had been present in the market, um, you know, over the last decade, Le Clanchet, um, Saft, um, who were doing kind of small-scale production. Um, but the general acceptance um, within the European industry was that uh, it would be very hard for Europe to become competitive against, you know, the juggernaut of China and Asia. Um, and over the space of about 18 months, that all changed. Uh, you know, and again, that was, there's a couple of key facts that we can kind of point to that 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 resulted in that one was the um kind of massive increase in ev adoption um as a result of the the stick method if you like forcing automakers um to meet stricter tailpipe um, emissions regulations um we also then had the kind of change um in stance from um the european union and suddenly putting um forward all of the state aid to support the kind of battery industry in Europe in general. Um, and then, you know, the third one, which I think a lot of people hadn't expected, was that actually the, on a, you know, on a large scale production, the cost of producing cells in, in Europe actually isn't that different um, anymore to producing them in Asia. Um, using our cost models, you know, the, the spread is about $10 per kilowatt hour. And why is that? Yeah, so, so, so the reason that, um, that change happened is because in the first half of, of the 2010s, you know, a lot of the manufacturing process was quite manual. So there was a high um, kind of labor cost associated with, with cell production. Um, I'm sure people, you know, well, you can go on YouTube and you can Google videos of kind of lithium-ion battery manufacturing and you can see people kind of literally winding the jelly rolls by hand. Um, that all changed and there's now far more automation um, involved. And so that switch meant that actually labor costs weren't as important in determining the economics of, of cell production. Instead, it's down to um, instead it's down to uh, the cost of electricity. 
it's interesting that a lot of those things that you mention um, really don't have anything to do with chemistry or even really economics, that a lot of the biggest changes are political. Uh, how do you guys deal with politics in your model? Do you even try, uh, speaking as a recovering political scientist, do you have political scientists and sort of um, government policy experts as part of your team? Or is that something that you just say, that's exogenous, we don't even want to try because it's too unpredictable? Yeah, so, 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 so you're quite right that it is so unpredictable. Um, and in general, well, to take a step back, yeah, we, we have dedicated policy teams at Bloomberg NEF. Um, so we have a European focused policy team um, who are looking at a range of different kind of policy related problems, if you like, beyond just batteries, everything to do with renewable energy, essentially. Um, when it comes to our longer term modeling, the stance that we've taken is that we try not to forecast policy. So we will take into account any kind of policy that is already in place. Um, but when that policy um, kind of runs out, we don't assume that anything kind of necessarily comes in and, and replaces it. Um, that can be an issue. Uh, you know, I think we'll probably be helped um, in the future with uh, things like legally binding um, net zero targets, because that you know, sets long-term targets that we can at least kind of uh, try to adhere to in our modeling. I think it's a good time to go to the future, to your forecasts. I think I have this number, $125 per kilowatt hour for next year and a $60 per kilowatt hour for 2030. That's our super ambitious number. So uh, what are the factors that you are considering for this huge price reduction? Yeah, and and I guess the, the so the hundred and twenty five dollar per kilowatt hour, which we are, our forecast tells us, um, you know, the average price should be in twenty twenty one when we do that survey. Um, I think there's, I, and I had this conversation internally the other day. You know, we have seen raw material prices um, rising at the beginning of this year, and that's putting pressure on on cell production. Of course, you know, cathode costs are going up, um, but so are other component materials like copper, um, copper foil. So there's there's the expectation that prices could be higher this year, and, and certainly that's you know one of the um, things I, 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 I am worried about. I guess every time I start that survey. Is, our price is going to go up this year. If so, what does that mean for you know for the industry and, and for our forecasts going forward? But luckily, it hasn't um, happened so far. But anyway, as I say, so 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 uh, you know, this year could be the year that prices go up. Uh, you know, that our volume weighted average price goes up um, because raw material prices are increasing. That being said, uh, there are some kind of factors that will balance that. Obviously, there's probably going to be a lot higher share of lithium ion phosphate deployments this year lower cost chemistry, that could help to kind of pull down that average. Um, so um, although, yeah, some raw material prices are going up, at the moment, I'm quietly optimistic that we probably will, you know, hit somewhere close to that $125 um, per kilowatt hour forecast. Um, going out to 20, um, 2030 and, and hitting that, yeah, $60 per kilowatt hour, that's clearly, um, you know, not, straightforward um you know there's several routes that could be taken um to achieve that and uh you know it, it it is a big ask for the industry if you look at where we are today that's kind of um more than halving um the price of of, of packs 
But that being said, um, you know, there's actually so many different levers that can be pulled to help achieve that. And so many different approaches that are being taken that, again, that gives me the confidence um, that we will get there. So I, I guess just to kind of rattle off a, a few of those, um, manufacturing processes is changing tr- dramatically. Um, if we look at the things like the run rate of um, uh, manufacturing facilities, um, you know, 10 years ago compared to where they are today, things are, are almost running at supersonic speed. And the run rate of these facilities is continuously increasing. Um, you know, one of the, the examples is where we can look to for, for that to kind of come um, over the next couple of years. And this was highlighted at VW's Power Day, um, you know, last month, is that cell production lines are becoming integrated. We're now seeing, um, you know, the slurry stations always going straight into the um, coating stations, which are going straight into the kind of cell assembly and then, um, you know, into the formation. And there are now Chinese um, equipment providers who will provide you with fully integrated production lines, something that is only just emerging, you know, a year ago, two years ago, you would go to one supplier who'd provide you with your slurry mixing stations, another one with your coating station, another one with your cell assembly. So, you know, the manufacturing process is changing um, quite a lot and, and speeding up run rates. There's also new manufacturing techniques. I guess dry electric coating is probably you know the one that people are most familiar with, and I think is really exciting. Um, so you know that, that that's just a, a small selection of some of the new manufacturing processes that are coming in that will help to reduce costs. Um, there's also then chemistry changes um, that are, are, are coming, and um, clearly kind of high nickel chemistries. Um, have lower raw material costs because the kilograms um, of material required per kilowatt hour um, are lower and you're reducing things like the cobalt content and and replacing it with cheaper um, nickel. Um, Now, again, with raw material prices kind of going up at the moment, that's perhaps not the, the, you know, the best um, example. But again, there are also kind of, you know, further changes that we can see there. Um, Things like increasing the manganese content to reduce the nickel content. And again, that will reduce the bill of the bill of raw materials. Um, so there are some chemistry changes coming on the cathode side. It, you know, again, um, we can point to kind of anode changes that are coming in, the introduction of, um, sil- your, I say the introduction that's already happening with silicon oxide, but, you know, the move to um, pure silicon doping. Um, so rather than using silicon oxide, using silicon nanowires or silicon nanoparticles. Um, there, uh, as an example, I was speaking to um, a, a company yesterday who's developed um, a process for coating silicon nanowires onto graphite. And there you reduce the cost of the anode material from um, about $6 per kilowatt hour with just pure graphite to about $3.3 per kilowatt hour with this silicon coated graphite. Now on a dollar per ton basis, obviously that's, it's not the same, but because you've got a higher capacity with that silicon doped material, your costs are coming down. Um, so that's one move um, as well on the, the, the anode side. And, and I guess, um, you know, the, the one that is probably uh, everyone's favorite topic is of course, you know, changing the electrolyte and going to solid state electrolytes and eventually full solid state cells. Um, now I probably don't have to kind of preach you two about the the impact that, that can have. Um, maybe uh, people listening maybe need a, a, a little bit more of a walkthrough. I mean, one of the things that stood out to me about those projections that you guys published a couple of months ago 
was that you're what you were saying was that a move to solid state chemistries is not a move up the cost curve. It's another factor that's actually going to be bringing costs down, which I think cuts against what a lot of people imagine is the case. They think, oh, it's this new technology. It must be very expensive and very difficult to be cost competitive. But from the models you presented, at least on paper, it looks like it might almost become a necessity to move to a process like this in order to compete on cost. So why is that? Yeah, so so, so that's a great point to raise. Um, and I should start by saying that um, you know, when these cells are kind of initially produced, um, we expect that they will be, um, you know, more expensive to manufacture because they're at sl small scale, because the supply chains aren't developed. But when, um, you know, the technology is at scale and you're producing kind of at, at volumes that are comparative to gigafactories today, at that point, we expect that solid state batteries um, will be cost competitive or cheaper than um, kind of traditional liquid-based lithium-ion systems. Um, and just to kind of highlight, you know, a number of reasons um, for that, I think one of the, um, you know, what one of the kind of clear advantages that we see today is that for a lot of these kind of um, all-solid-state batteries with lithium metal um, uh, anodes that are being developed, um, or anodeless, if you like, as well, um, you avoid the formation cycle. Um, and currently, uh, you know, the formation cycle can uh, consume up to kind of 15% or more of the lithium in the cathode active material. And that essentially means that 15% of your cathode active material um, is now isolated and inactive because there's no lithium to cycle between it and the, the, the anode. Um, with the solid state battery and a lithium metal anode, if you can avoid that formation step, if you're not consuming um, lithium to form the, um, the solid electrolyte interface, then essentially you need 15% less cathode active material. And that is giving you a cost saving right there. Um, if you can uh, kind of optimize your cell design as well, you can reduce some of the um, inactive cell component costs. Um, again, you know, this is, is, is slightly tricky, but um, depending on the thickness of your um, of your um, solid electrolyte and the thickness of your, your anode, um, you may be able to reduce your electrolyte costs and your um, anode material costs. Um, again, it, it, it's all, um, you know, I, I should point out that this is all fairly theoretical, but this is, you know, with the work that we do, we assume that if these challenges can be overcome, there is a clear route to reducing these costs. Um, and so, you know, th th there definitely is, um, a lot of innovations here. And I think the thing that I would say in terms of, you know, oh, this is quite speculative. Yes, it is. But actually, there's so many companies working on solid state technologies today. It's, um, you know, hard to see how there won't be at least one company, if not more, that find routes to achieving these, um, these goals. And it's also worth remembering that none of the um, kind of developments that are coming out of any of these companies are uh, kind of being done in isolation. Most of the technological advances will be applicable to other companies working on solid state batteries and indeed to kind of companies working on liquid-based lithium-ion systems as well. Excellent. I just had a really uh, a question also about how as technology improvements improve performance of batteries, how your model does or doesn't incorporate that. And one that comes to mind is assuming that there's some sort of... Um, 
improvement in battery technology that allows, for example, you to cycle the battery to 100% depth of discharge every single time without negatively affecting cycle life too much. It would allow the manufacturers to stop selling the customer more battery than they'll actually be able to use, right? Because we have these sort of gross pack sizes, I think in the new um, MEB platform for, for Volkswagen, you know, they sell you 82 kilowatt hours worth of batteries, but you're only allowed to use 77. Um, if you didn't have to have those top and bottom buffers, that's a nearly 10% cost savings right off the top. Does your model incorporate that kind of change or is it really just sort of gross sell and pack size? Yeah, so that's that, that, that's a great question. <clears throat> so um, we're looking kind of gross sell and pack size, um, but our transport team does take into take the kind of oversizing into account when they do their work looking at par kind of price parity between electric vehicles and internal combustion engine vehicles. So they add those buffers on at, at that point. If, as you say, you can get rid of those buffers, then that does pull the kind of economics of price parity forward by, you know, I don't know how many years off the top of my head, but perhaps a year or two, depending on the segment that, that you're looking at. Um, the, the thing that I would um, caveat that with, of course, is um, would automakers get rid of that buffer or would they just allow you to access it and give you a longer driving range? And I think that's always the, the kind of question that we're, we're playing with, um, you know, is... Um, as prices come down or, or energy density improves, do you stick to the ranges that are acceptable today and reduce the cost, um, or do you just increase the range and you know have the kind of same work with that same cost? Yeah, or both. Or, or both, indeed. Yeah, depend. It depends. Um, yeah, what what different people want in different markets, I guess. So I want to get a bit more technical. I think for your forecasting, you used the process more or less what solid power is developing, right? Um, but I mean, if we, we talk about solid state, it's a very generic term. There, is a, there are many different technologies. We have polymers, which need to be heated up. We have these sulfides, which are not so stable. And then we have oxides, which are super hard to process. What are your takes on these different technologies? What do you think will be ruling in the future? No if pressure, just predict the next 10 years of battery technology. Yeah, um, yeah. This is this is definitely a, a, a hard question. Now, I think um, pro probably the, the two technologies that I would say I'm, you, you know, I, I'm most optimistic about would be um, the sulfides and the um, kind of oxide ceramic materials. Um, the main reason um, for that is I think the ceramic materials in the long run. Um, offer some pretty interesting routes to kind of entirely changing the way that batteries are kind of manufactured and produced. Um, you can look, for example, at, at Prologium from Taiwan, who um, have this idea of, of kind of um, most printing um, bipolar cell designs where you don't really have an individual cell anymore. You have multiple cells that are kind of um, manufactured together to form a module. Um, and you, you know, I think they have an example of um, you know four modules um, that um, kind of make up a pack that have kind of each module contains um, hundreds, if not thousands, of individual kind of connections between cells that are, are back to back to each other, essentially. Um, so I think that's really interesting and, and quite exciting in the way that it can change the um, 
the technology again. Um, I think in the, the nearer term, um, sulfides are really exciting and interesting just because they can more easily be integrated into the existing um, manufacturing process of, of, of liquid-based lithium-ion batteries. And I think there's probably um, you know, a lot of uh, performance improvements that can come from the sulfide side of of things as well. Let me just jump in and ask you, why do you say that, that sulfides would be more easily integrated into the sort of current state of the art? The, yeah, the, the, the main reason that I say that, I guess, is that, um, and this depends on the type of processing method you're going with, um, but if we look at the kind of roll-to-roll production that we have today, um, with the sulfides, you can um, create an ink slurry, essentially similar to you would do the way you do it with a cathode. And you can coat that onto either a substrate or direct, you know, a, a, a sacrificial substrate or directly onto um, a kind of cathode, if you like. Um, and you can wind that and you can put it on rolls and you can kind of just almost um, replace, if you like, the um, anode coating line with a um, electrolyte coating line um, in existing facilities and you're just changing the material that you're mixing and then um, instead of kind of coating graphite onto your um, copper um, anode current collector you're just putting lithium you know a lithium metal roll into the process at some point to create these kind of stacked cells so that to me is is an advantage because actually not much of the equipment has to change at all in the the, the kind of cell manufacturing facilities. Um, whereas if you look at the um, you know the oxide ceramic materials, they're more brittle. Um, you know you can't um, roll them. You're producing sheets. Um, the and, and and maybe this is a question for Geordie actually. Um, you know there the certainly has been. Um, in the past, the problem of um, you know pinholes that can create um, space for dendrites to grow, um, and so the the processing of that is is much harder. Um, that being said, you know with companies like VW moving to stacked prismatic cells rather than um, you know cylindrical cells or, or rolled prismatic cells, um, actually you could produce ceramic electrolyte sheets that can be included in that stacking process. Um, and then you just have to do the lamination after that. So um, as the, the the way that the industry is moving in the future, um, you know, ceramic materials probably will be fairly easy to integrate. Um, but as it stands, you know, today with a lot of kind of um, winding processes being used, it's harder to, to integrate those ceramic sheets. Jordi, you want to add to that in terms of uh, sulfides versus oxides, manufacturability and... Uh, above all, getting yields out of your solid-state electrolyte? So and I, I completely agree with you, James. Uh, sulfides are easily processed as a slurry, in, as a doctor plate or slide dye coated, coated uh, way, whereas oxides require to be processed in sheets, which then have to be stacked, and the yield of those sheets is terrible. I don't know, you need like super precise processes. Um, and doing that cheaply and in 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 large scale, it's it's gonna take a while and it's gonna take a lot of effort. I mean, we've you've said it. There is so much money involved in this industry that, for sure, or I'm I'm confident that someone will manage to get it working. But it's a it's, I mean, it's it's fairly it's a fairly challenging technology. So I mean, I, I agree that there might be both technologies coexisting for the for the 
midterm in 10 years, we won't, I don't know what will happen in, in 20 years. I, I didn't know, I didn't know I was allowed to use that. I don't know as an answer here. I might've gone with that one otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know too many things. Huh? <laughs> I think that's a good, that's a good chance for me to sort of take a step back. And, you know, you mentioned getting into batteries, getting into battery research in around 2010, um, and sort of having this feeling like, you know, this revolution was just around the corner. And I guess in some ways it wasn't, it maybe took longer than it felt like at the time. On the other hand, if you look at where we are today, you know, it, it, making changes of this scale takes time, but not that much time, right? It's sort of slowly, slowly, and then all at once. Um, so if you look back to yourself in, in 2010, do you think you'd be surprised, disappointed, excited about where we are today and then sort of project yourself out to 2030 and sort of try and think about yourself in 10 years and and how things will look at that point? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I go back to 20, 2010, um, I was probably quite naive on the, you know, the economics. Um, in my mind, it was almost once you have a battery that works, um, everything will switch overnight. Um, Fast forward perhaps to 2011, 2012, when I understood battery technology a bit more, I understood some of the um, uh, difficulties with it. Um, you know, I, I think at that point, looking at where we are today, I would be surprised. Um, you know, I think particularly just the amount of interest that there is in the industry, um, the amount of growth, the amount of money, um, the attention that it gets uh, in the in the media, um, in government, etc., is 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 actually astounding. Um, and you know, I think Tesla um, has a big part to play in that. Uh, when I started in in two thousand and ten or two thousand eleven, you know, um, and I tell friends I'm doing a PhD in, in uh, lithium ion batteries, it kind of get this look, and they're like, "Oh, what the Energizer Bunny?" Um, fast forward to 2012, 2013, you have the Model S out there, and suddenly everyone's saying, "Oh, lithium ion batteries, electric vehicles! Wow, that's really cool." Um, I've heard about Tesla. Tell me more about it. Um, you know, so 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 so, so Tesla definitely um, had a, a big role to play in that. Um, I think if I were to, you know, what, where where are we going to be in in 2030? It's hard to say, but I think one thing that that I am certain of is that the industry is still going to be incredibly exciting. We're not going to be close to the end of the kind of technology development roadmap. There's going to be a lot of innovation and performance improvements to come, uh, and it'll probably be gaining more interest than ever. And we'll see the electrification of kind of more sectors than than, than we could possibly imagine. Let's even look further in the, into the future. It's very cool that you said that you worked in lithium air batteries. Uh, there are all these kind of alternative chemistries, sodium, magnesium, potassium, um, what else, calcium. Where do you see these technologies? Uh, is it an academic thing or will they ever find some market? Yeah, th 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 this is a, another really tricky, tricky question. Um, uh, I want to pull the I don't know card, but I'm not going to quite yet. I'm going to go with, um, you know, I think what what I what I am confident on is that in the passenger electric vehicle industry, um, lithium is going to be the dominant technology until 2035, if not longer, 2040. Um, you know, in some form, maybe that's solid state batteries um, or, or uh, you know, um, 
another technology that I can't think of at the moment that uses lithium. Um, I, I think that's certain. But I think, um, you know, for these alternative chemistries, there are going to be some applications that are perhaps more suitable to them. So um, applications perhaps where um, safety is, is is more of an issue, um, although with solid state batteries, hopefully that safety isn't too much of a problem for lithium um, iron going forward. Um, but the problem for most of these kind of new technologies will just be comp competing with those ever falling cost curves for lithium-based batteries. Because if you um, switch your kind of uh, active materials to you know high manganese with almost no nickel in it, it's only really the lithium that's going to be expensive in there. Um, that's going to reduce your bit of materials dramatically. By 2035, 2040, I imagine the manufactured cost is going to be a fraction of what it is today, which again is going to drive down the costs. So if you're a new technology coming onto the market, um, even if you have very low um, kind of bill of materials today, it's going to be hard to be competitive with lithium-ion batteries because everything about the lithium-ion battery is getting cheaper. So you're going to have to have some sort of differentiating um, factor that allows you to, 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 to really win market share. Maybe that's the lifetime of the system. Maybe that is um, the charge rate. Perhaps it's the environmental credentials. Um, you know, there are a number of factors that, that, that could give another technology um, an advantage, um, but I don't think it's going to be straightforward. One last question. What question do you wish people would ask you? Yeah, th th this is a good one. Um, and I was trying to think about this um, beforehand. There's a load of questions I could draw on. There's not not one that kind of um, comes to the, the the front of my mind. I think what I'm going to go with um, uh, instead is um, what question do I wish people wouldn't ask me? And I think everybody who works in the battery industry can can relate to this. Um, I wish my friends would stop asking me when they're going to have a smartphone that's going to have a battery that lasts a week. If you want to have a phone that has a battery that lasts a week, go and get a Nokia 3310. That's a great answer. All right. James Frith from Bloomberg NEF, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, man. Thanks, Jordi. Thank you very much, James. That's all we have time for this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions you'd like our battery experts to answer, please tweet at us. Our handle is at Cellsiders. That's C-E-L-L-S-I-D-E-R-S. -E -E our theme music was composed by Seneca. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.